0: or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both, underscore, MOV, number two, L-I-V. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Welcome back to another edition of the Moving to Live podcast, the ethos of moving to live and our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, is movement as a lifestyle, not just an activity. Our whole goal with Moving to Live is to interview people really across the movement spectrum from personal trainers all the way up to physicians. And today's guest I am excited to interview. I was fortunate enough to be interviewed on his podcast a couple of months ago. He is a medical doctor. He has a podcast and he does a variety of other things that I think we're going to get into. And in the time of COVID-19, we're doing this interview on the 30th of March. We're probably going to get into that a little bit, too, because although he spends time in the United States and Mexico, he has been in Spain for the last couple of weeks. So I think he has some insights on how treatment and how social distancing, et cetera, is different in Spain versus the United States. We are with Dr. Ernesto Gutierrez. We'll have show notes, but you can find him on podcast players with Dr. E's Highway to Health show. Dr. E, thanks for taking time to talk to Moving to Live.
1: Absolutely. Love to be here. Thank you so much for the invite, Ben.
0: The question I always ask people I have on the podcast, because I think it's uh, we we do go across the movement spectrum, is you see somebody in an elevator, not now during the coronavirus, but hopefully three or four months from now when things have not gone back to normal, but we've got a new normal. And they say, you know, what do you do? What's What's your elevator speech or your 30 seconds for somebody who just is curious of what you do?
1: Well, I'm a I'm a physician. Um, I I specialize. I really went to school for for longevity and uh, anti aging, and that led me into regenerative medicine and stem cell treatment. So so I've I've been doing that for for quite a number of years now. But really, if I had to define myself, I am I'm more of an educator. I'm a i am believe that health is an active pursuit that, that it's, it's our own responsibility. And there's no better way to do it than if you're well-equipped with the right knowledge and uh, education. So that's what I focus most of my time in right now.
0: And I know one of the things I've often commented to people across the years is a lot of people spend more time looking for a good mechanic for their car than for good medical advice. They assume, well, this physician is on my medical plan, or a friend of mine said that this was a good physician. And they don't really, for lack of a better term, do their due diligence, find out, you know, is this physician, is this somebody that I can communicate with? Is this somebody who, you know, understands what my goals are? And I know you you mentioned that really nobody wants to be sick. Nobody wants to be ill. And I know in the movement field, there's a tendency for uh, people kind of lower down on the educational ladder. That's a bad terminology, but maybe not physicians, but personal trainers, Um, people in uh, the group fitness say more is better or go hard. And I think in this time of Corona 19, the nice thing is a lot of people are kind of stepping back and say, you know, movement is good, but we know that if we exercise too intensely, too long, too often, it can affect immune function. So, I'm curious with your background in medicine, how did you gravitate towards regenerative medicine and this is a catch all term which will correct me on and I'm saying it purposely anti aging, which is not what you yeah. actually are doing. I think a better term is what
1: well when i when i so here's the thing when i graduated graduated two thousand eight and uh, for medical school. And when I was looking for my you know for my, for my specialty training, it was called anti-aging. Uh, of course that term, as you very well know, got prostituted and now literally everyone who does a cream or who wants to get rid of wrinkles or who anything of the sort, they just call it anti-aging. So really, uh, one of the concepts that I, that I picked up and the way that I like to refer to it is age management. Um, because we all age, but it's just a matter of, of of maintaining and avoiding the typical downfalls that we see with our physiology as we age. And the truth of the matter is, as scientists, we very well know why a lot of the typical symptoms of aging don't necessarily have to do with aging. They have to do with neglect.
0: I really like that neglect. I know I've got a, a client who's in his early 60s and he likes to run and he likes to bike. And one of his comments is after doing a hard, a hard bike ride or two or going on vacation and biking for three or four days harder than he typically does is he goes, you know, this crap when they talk about aging and recovery taking longer, it really is true. So I want to touch a little bit on that neglect that you're talking about. If you could kind of expand out, out more on that. I know it probably encompasses many things in my specialty of the field. It's a lot of people don't like to move, but it's not just movement. It's other things. If you could kind of talk about
1: that. Well, so movement is 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 very important. As you know, you and I we've we've spoken about that, and I know that you know that's that's literally what your what your career is about, and uh, and, and and your whole mission. And, and here's the thing, or the reason why movement is so important. I mean, it, it does have a lot of other benefits as well, like cognitive benefits and, and and such. But one of the main reasons, in terms of longevity and age management, that movement is so important is because it helps maintain muscle mass. If we if we think about our bodies as as these as these machines that they are, muscle is a very expensive asset to have. right? It does require a lot of energy. It does require a lot of maintenance. It does require a lot of input. So in order for for us or for our body to consider it as an essential asset to maintain, we need to make sure that we're using it. If we stop using it, our body is going to say, why the hell am I leaving aside all these, all these resources, all this energy, all these nutrients, all these different things, if we're not really using this, it's literally cutting costs. If you want to look at it from, from an economics perspective, it's, it's cutting costs. So when that happens, we start losing muscle. And when we start losing muscle, a lot of other metabolic changes start happening in our bodies. And, and, and today we know very well that maintenance of muscle is one of the most important markers of longevity. People who live the longest, they keep their lean muscle the longest. It's as simple as that.
0: And I think one of the things that's very interesting, having grown up in a rural area and living in a semi-rural area now, but having lived in a city, is for people who grow up in a rural area, if they grow up where there are more manual labor jobs or they happen to have a family farm or some acreage, that muscle mass maintenance may not consist of going to the gym or lifting weights at home. They may actually get that doing their yard work on their multi-acre yard, or maybe they have horses, or they have beef cattle, or they have a vegetable garden. I know from my Fit Lab Pittsburgh podcast, I interviewed a gentleman who owns a, a uh, restaurant in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Reed & Co., And when I asked him, you know, why activity was so important to him, he said, well, his parents were always very active, not as organized activity, but he grew up on an organic vegetable farm. And I think he said they had 15 or 20 acres of vegetables and that gives the movement. How hard is it for people who, in your experience, who don't live that more agrarian lifestyle or more rural lifestyle to maintain that muscle mass versus maybe people who the idea of going to a, a big city like New York City or Pittsburgh is like oh my god I don't want to do
1: that. Well, that 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 was me, and uh, I grew up in Mexico City. So you know you talk about large cities that's that's literally the definition of a big chaotic city. Um, when where you need to get in the car to go anywhere where your commute is one hour if you're lucky doesn't matter where you're going. Um, you're just not used to doing that, and you're absolutely right. A lot of the times people who live the longest and and who are the healthiest the who have the law lo- the lowest indexes of uh, chronic disease these are the people that have a lot more outdoor and movement activities as we start moving towards sedentarism and as we start spending more time indoors and we start moving less uh, it, it becomes harder and it becomes an effort and and for those of us who were raised in a city, in an urban environment, we do have to make that conscious effort. And, and and part of what we're currently seeing right now is because we have gotten to that point. And, and I'm not just talking about the problem and, and how, how fast COVID is spreading and whatnot, but I'm talking about a lot of other conditions that we're seeing, a lot of chronic disorders, even infertility issues, even a lot of things that we're starting to see more of it has to do with the fact that we're spending more times indoors and less time outside and less time moving. And it's a combination of both. One is movement and activity, and the other is is simply being outdoors, being out in the sun, being out in fresh air, being out in nature, because there's there's more and more research that suggests that we, you know, we we need that. Our bodies evolved in 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 nature. So we do crave and need those things. And I know there are growing bodies of research. I know the
0: Japanese do uh, nature baths or for- forest uh-huh. ba- forest bathing rather. And I know that there's some research about people who spend time near large bodies of water and you're starting to see uh, interesting things coming out about grounding and people walking actually on mm-hmm. the earth rather than being on hard surfaces all the time. So I'm curious. I, mean, I think you're probably very well suited to speak on this since as you said you grew up in Mexico city for somebody like me, we were chatting before, uh, we started recording, you know, I live on four acres. So the idea of getting out on the ground is kind of innate to me. And it's natural to me because I have to see if something is flooded or I have to mow it in the summer. Mm -hmm. For somebody who grows up in Mexico City or some other large city, or they have a family at this point in time, and they know they're going to be living in this sort of environment. How do they become more active? Or what are ways that you just from a personal experience that you found? Because I know from talking to you, not during the virus, but prior to that, you and your wife and your young son spent quite a bit of time. And I know at times you said sometimes thirty to forty thousand steps a day, just walking around, seeing the sights.
1: Yeah, well, that that actually was a bit of a cultural shock for me at, at first when I met my wife. Uh, she grew up here in Spain, um, in and actually in a small town uh, north of where we're at right now in Alicante, and they're used to walking everywhere. Like literally, you you do your entire life, you walk. To school, you walk to work. You walk. uh, You you have lunch and or you have dinner and you go outside for a walk. That's literally what people do. You don't. They don't plop on the couch. They go outside for a walk. And sure, people look at the 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 positives. They say like, oh yeah, look at all these these Spaniards and look at these Italians. They have dinner and then they go for ice cream. Like yeah, but you're forgetting the important component. They have dinner and then they walk six thousand steps to get to the ice cream shop. They have a single scoop of ice cream, and then they walk 6,000 steps back. And, and that's the part that most of us don't, don't you know, we, we, we fail to notice. We just say, like, well, it's just a matter of going for you know high-calorie meal, and then we get the ice cream right there, and then we drive home, right? Um, so it was a bit of a culture shock to me at first just to get used to that because if I, if I could change something about the way that I was brought up, I wish – there had been more education towards the need for physical movement. Because I mean, as a kid, especially, you know, when I went to school, sure, you have after school activities. And it's pretty much like what's happening in the US right now, right? You have PE twice a week. Oh, that's nothing. Or you have, you know, you have after school activities and you 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 play soccer for you know 45 minutes twice a week. What what kind of a physical activity is that? And then you go and you sit down for eight hours straight. I wish I had been raised that way because then it would come second nature to me. I, I didn't realize that. And the problem is that when you're, when you're young, your body can take it. And this is, this is one of the things that I always tell my patients because they say, well, you know, when I was young, it was easy and this, and I would just work out for maybe a week and I would start getting muscles when I was in high school. And now it's, it's impossible. And I say, well, when you're young, it's kind of like getting that brand new credit line and credit card. You can put as much stuff as you want in it, and you don't have to pay any of it, right? Sure, you're accruing interest, and you pay a little bit, and you know you do this. But then will come a day where where you won't be able to buy anything, and you're literally just paying, 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 paying. It's the same thing. If 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 you're you're just raised to put all those things in your credit card and your body's credit card, which is which is the way I was raised. Um, I wish I had changed that, and I see that happening every day with people all over the world. It's not just a problem in Mexico. It's a problem in the US. It's a problem in Canada. It's a problem here in Europe, even now. Um, as as we move towards more, you know, being more indoors and and everything is dangerous and, and kids can no longer play out in the streets and you know they're trying to ban team sports because they might hit their heads and whatnot. It's like listen, kids enjoy running around. I, I see my toddler, he's two and a half. He probably runs inside the house thirty thousand steps in a day. I'm not even kidding because that's that's fun for him. That's what he does for fun. It's until we educate him to say like, no, no, no. Listen, if you watch TV, that's more fun. And suddenly they 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 start believing that, and they're like, yeah, sure, this is more fun.
0: I know one of the things that probably conditions people to have their children watch more TV or be more inside sedentary is you don't have to be as active. I was fortunate enough when I was a kid, my parents didn't let me watch a lot of television. And one of the comments my dad made, often made was, you know, read a book because then your mind's working. Television, it's much more passive. Yeah. So I, I, I see it's so much easier to do something that's passive, whether it's mind-oriented or movement-oriented. And I think you hit it on the head, you know, a couple of days of activity and that's it. Whereas if you're living in a society like your wife grew up in, you know, You don't really think that you're moving. It's just, well, I want to go to the ice cream store. I have to walk. I I I need to get there. And I know the price of gasoline and parking and things like that are much more severe in in Spain. And I suspect the idea of hopping in the car to drive two kilos or two kilometers to go get ice cream, most people would look at you and go, what are you, crazy? Or or, or are you
1: uh, very, very rich? Well, there, there, there are a couple of things there here. Uh, so people, a lot of times they don't even have a car, uh, especially downtown. Um, that's, that's number one. Number two, you're absolutely right for them. It's not about being crazy to get in the car. It's about being crazy to not want to walk. That's, that's what they just simply don't conceive. They're like, when, when I first started dating my wife and we, we were, we were living in Cancun and she would say like, I just want to go for a walk. And I'm like, where, like where where are we going to walk to it's it's you know like 500 degrees out there where do you want to go and she's like i don't know i don't have a destination i just want to go out for a walk and 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 that's how people here think that's how people here are you know they're 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 raised to do so it's not just about like you're saying like you're crazy because you want to drive it's you're crazy because you don't want to walk like that's there, there's there's nothing like that and you see you see older people you see people in their 80s and their 90s and and they, they go outside and they go for a walk and they go to a coffee shop and you know they're, they're out on the street all the time. And I know that's a conscious choice. I know my
0: dad is 85 and he rides a bicycle quite frequently and very often I'll get a phone call from him. It's like, oh, I just walked into town and I went to the coffee shop and I got some uh, spanakopita to, to take home to eat. And I can just tell, and I think he can consciously or subconsciously. For lack of a better term, it's a stress reliever. There's less noise. There, it's quiet. You know, one of the things that you're able to notice is like, oh wow, you know, it's, we're two weeks closer in spring, and you can see, see the birds. I'm curious because of your description of of growing up in Mexico City and then meeting your wife, which was very different. Do you recall a specific moment where you realized like, wow, this taking a walk thing is actually kind of cool, or I really enjoy this, or I never thought I'd do this, but hey, honey, let's go for a walk.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's hard to say it happened here or this is the one time where it happened. But especially now that I've been, I mean, right now we've been in Spain for eight months, I think, uh, somewhere around there. And even I, I've done my entire life just walking. And because we thought this was going to be a temporary thing, we're living downtown. We don't even have a car. I haven't driven a car. I drove a car when we flew back to California for a couple of weeks uh, at some point. And that's where you had to rent a car and drive around. Other than that, I haven't driven a car. And and right now that we've been forced to stay indoors, I, I do miss it. I do miss just going out for a walk because you're absolutely right. It also like you said it has physical benefits and it also has great cognitive benefits and and it was one of um, one of cal Newport's uh, books and i don't remember if it was in digital minimalism or in in his other book uh, deep work where he talks about uh, charles Dar- darwin's Um, habit of walking every day. So every day he would wake up, he would journal a little bit, and then he would go for walks for about an hour, an hour and a half, two hours sometimes before lunch, uh, where he would just be literally walking. And of course, Charles Darwin didn't have his iPod and wasn't hearing podcasts or wasn't hearing to, you know, Rihanna's latest single. And he was, he was thinking, you know, that's, that's what people used to do. And, and, and a lot of the times, Walking and those kind of physical activities are the only time where we can, where we can actually get that uh, cognitive output because if you think about it, we are so used to just getting input all the time, all the time, all the time. So, so walking is also a great way to, to finally just get some, some output where you can literally just be with your thoughts and, 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 and conceive things. We're talking with Dr. Ernesto Gutierrez. He has the podcast,
0: Dr. E's Highway to Health. He is a regenerative medicine and age management physician, but I think what he hit on that I really like is the fact that he is an educator. You were mentioning, Dr. E, about educating your patients and talking to them. How difficult is it to get them to make these lifestyle changes of moving more? And I know we could spend an entire another episode of potentially changing the way they eat or just be aware of what they eat or when they eat.
1: Well, it has to be little by little. Um, truth of the matter is, as, as we were saying before, uh, people, and, and I used to say patients, but in reality, people, we like to hear good things about our bad habits, right? So so we always will fight for our bad habits, and and that's one of the things that Jim Quick says, that if you, if you fight for your good habits, you get to keep them. Um, for your bad habits, you get to keep them, right? So... Most of the time, when I see a patient, they they already know that they're doing something wrong and that they're not getting the results that they want. Or, or that's what they know is that they're not getting the results that they want. Either they're aging too fast, they're they're getting a lot of aches and pains, they're in their 40s and and they have very low energy, they cannot keep up with their kids, and a lot of the times their kids aren't even like like teenagers; they're they're sometimes younger. So they already know these things now. Even then, you have to realize that all of our choices that we do throughout our days, and I like to think of them as a spectrum, right? So if somebody's if somebody's having, you know, French fries and and and, and fried chicken and a regular Coke for lunch, you're not going to bring them over to grill chi- chi- to grill chicken and, and water in in a session, no matter how much they tell you they want to, right? So so. It has to be gradual. It has to be one little step at a time, and that's another great book, uh, Atomic Habits. And, and and that's the thing. So first, you need to get them to adopt that identity of the new person that they want to become. So, for instance, maybe they say, you know what? Let's just let's just avoid the Coke. Let's just do Diet Coke. And then for a little bit, let's just change this and let's just change that. And once they once they're comfortable with that, they go to the next step. Same thing with movement. If if somebody, I mean, the worst. Worst thing that you can suggest to somebody, even if they're young, let's say somebody's in their mid thirties, right? And they haven't moved since they were in high school. That's a good 15 years, right? At the very least, they haven't moved at all. Suddenly you say, you know what, you should do some CrossFit. That's the, wor- that's the absolute worst disservice you just did to that person. Because they're, I mean, they're going to go there. They're going to feel like crap to falling there. They're going to be sore. And that's if they don't get injured because they very well might get injured trying to jump those boxes or trying to do any of those crazy things. Now, some people can do it. Absolutely, because they they work up to that point or because they've been active their entire life. But there's no shame if you haven't done exercises in 15 years to start slow, to start doing some body weights, to start doing some, you know, even half weights. Push-ups with with your knees down. There's really no shame, and that's part of the problem that we want to go too fast, uh, <laughs> too quick, and 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 it's it's a very very intense jump. And I think that, like you very well said, as, a, as an educator, my job as a as a physician, as as a healthcare professional, trying to make people trying to help them improve their health is to make sure that they're going to 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 be able to to maintain whatever change we're introducing. And in order for that to happen, I cannot just come in and say, "Well, this is the absolute best thing you can do. And you wake up and you do 2 hours of exercise and you eat this way and you eat that way because that's too far from them. They they're, they're going to go like, "Well, yeah, that's perfect, but that's 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 just I cannot reach that." So you have to start small and you have to figure out where they're at, where they want to get to, but most importantly what their next Step should be because that's what people need. They need their next step.
0: I like the comment, you have to fight for bad habits. I know I interviewed a sleep researcher, Dr. Ian Dinikin a few, uh, I guess, last year, and we were talking about uh, electrical devices and the, affecting your quality of sleep. And I immediately made the comment, "Well, you know, I I don't think this affects me at all." And I went out and I bought a, uh, a paper white Kindle, which doesn't have the same uh, color on the screen. And I switched cold turkey from using my iPad to read in bed to that. And amazingly enough, I fell asleep much, much quicker and didn't wake up in the middle of the night. So you can teach an old dog new tricks. And sometimes it's just a matter of planting a seed in their mind. You don't think you're saying anything significant. Yeah. Like your comment, well, you know, why don't you try water instead of, of Coke? And if they do that three out of the five days that they're eating that fried chicken and the French fries, that's a pretty significant life change if you extrapolate
1: it out over the whole year. Exactly. That's, that's, that's what you need to realize, that if you do 1% every day, you do 1% better every single day, then you're doing 365% better over the course of a year. So that's, I mean, that's amazing. The thing is, people want to do 100% overnight, and that's not possible but you can do 365% over the course of a year by just doing 1% a day.
0: I know right now we're in the middle of COVID-19 and we've got in the United States, the majority, if not all of the fitness centers closed down. And if you follow on social media, there are large numbers of, you say large numbers of people, but I know 23% of the U.S., doesn't exercise at all. So it really isn't a large number, but you just see it because it is on social media. A lot of them don't know what to do because somebody isn't there to tell them what to do. When you work with your patients, when you educate them, what are some things you do to give them the tools so that they're not constantly calling you or trying to make appointments with you three or four times a week to say, Dr. E, what do I do now?
1: Well, when I was when I was doing a lot more clinical work, right now I do I do very little one to one work with my patients, and not all of it is remotely. So I'm only working right now. For instance, I'm only working with six patients, and it's it's a different kind of program than what we were, were doing before. But uh, to answer your question, when you know when when this was my one um, activity, and I was just seeing patients in and out uh, day in day out, what's most important is is staying in touch. And, and just giving them the, the guidelines, giving them the, the general guidelines, because I know that I mentioned just now that, that people are looking for the next step, but then again, you have to help them the next step to create an identity to create the identity of somebody who moves regularly to create an identity of somebody who eats well regularly to create an identity of somebody who maintains and cares for his or her body regularly not necessarily you don't you don't want them to be attached to you forever for directions into well what should i eat today like that that really doesn't serve anyone except the guy selling the little diet or the, you know, the, 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 meal plans, uh, I've, I've never advocated for that. So part of, part of what we, what we always emphasized was in educating them so that they did not need us as, as their healthcare team, because I, I, I never worked alone. I've always worked with a team, right? So you have somebody who can also help them with, with physical exercise, with movement. Um, you know, you have somebody, we, we used to work a lot with physical therapists as well. A lot of the times, you know, I just gave the example, somebody in their mid thirties who hasn't exercised in 15 years. Well, what about, what if that person waits another 25 years and now they're in their mid fifties or they're in their you know late fifties and they haven't exercised at all. You're not going to send them to the gym. You need a physical therapist so that they can start, you know, mobilizing certain things. So uh, that was, that was always the goal. And like I said, people who are empowered, they can, they can make their own choices, but you need to empower them with the knowledge. And that was always uh, our, our, our motto. And it's kind of like the, um, give someone a fish or teach them how to fish. That's, that's literally the thing we were teaching them how to fish so they could make those decisions. They could adopt that identity. And then when you're faced with a, with a question and you're thinking, well, should I eat this or should I eat that? Well, just think about the kind of person that you want to become Does does a healthy person eat this, or does a healthy person eat that? And then it's, it's a very simple.
0: I think you defined the difference between an educator and a guru. The educator doesn't want the student to constantly be reliant on them, but rather give them the tools. The guru wants the student to always say, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do?
1: Well, that's a business model.
0: (laughs) Well said. Switching gears a little bit, you said you're doing a little bit less clinical work now than you have in the past. and I, th- I know one of the most interesting things about doing this podcast is the career paths that so many people take because you know you can pull up your podcast and see what you do and see that you're in Spain now. But it didn't happen overnight. What was the impetus or what was the decision to say, you know, I'm going to switch a little bit less from doing clinical and more to broad-based education, educating other physicians, hosting a podcast, et cetera?
1: Well, a lot of things happened uh, when I was uh, when I was in, in in Cancun before I moved to the U.S. Actually, uh, I was in Cancun and I was running the uh, stem cell uh, research facility. It's a, it's a clinical research facility and treatment centers, and I did that for seven or eight years, and we were very successful there. But then I got I got an invitation to work at a uh, stem cell manufacturer and distributor in in California. That's where we moved. Uh, but when we got there, I I discovered a lot of things. Uh, number one that. Uh, let's just say that the operation that invited me over there was uh, less than legal, and uh, and well, I, I I just could stay along a lot of time there. Uh, but then the other thing that I did notice a lot, and it's something that I had already kind of seen because I was. Consulting with some of my friends on the side, I've I've always had that knack for 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 business and for marketing or for understanding a, a healthcare practice as a business, right? And uh, but what I saw in the U.S. was that the system was even a lot more broken, and the doctors were were very very neglected. That had been commoditized. They were not making ends meet. They were graduating with more than a quarter of a million dollars of student debt, and um, and and literally they were being. Treated like replaceable cogs in a system, um, and and not only that, but they were also being seen as <laughs> kind of like the bad guys, right? So, uh, you know, patients would get angry at the doctors, and and insurance systems would call them greedy, and, and and hospitals were trying to replace them and to use mid levels and whatnot. So, when we decided that we were going to 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 leave the US and we, we had the option to either go back to Mexico or come here to Spain uh, to be near my wife's family, we decided we were going to come over here. And I was going to start spending more time doing both of those things. One, educating patients um, and, and helping them and empowering them through the podcast and through some other educational uh, programs. But then the other side was educating, coaching, and consulting with doctors and healthcare professionals, because I personally believe, and uh, not everyone shares this belief, but a lot of people do, I personally believe that the way to save healthcare is by empowering doctors to be entrepreneurs, to be to physicians and healthcare professionals to be entrepreneurs. I think a big part of the problem with the entire system is that doctors for many years, let's say 30, 40, 50 years, we've not only agreed to the way the system is, is, is going, but we've actually encouraged it. We've actually um, facilitated it by saying, well, you know what, I really just want to see my patients, you guys handle the business, but now we're seeing the results of it. So, one of, my, one of my very first teachers in, in, in medicine, he's, he used to say that the business of healthcare needs to be in the hands of healthcare professionals because some of the decisions that we're seeing being taken today, and they're becoming more evident right now with COVID, right? Um, some of the decisions that the hospitals are taking right now, they're cutting uh, budgets for certain things, they're cutting expenses, they don't have enough uh, protective equipment, they don't have enough of other things. Those are calls that a doctor would have never made somebody who actually understood what it was like to to have a person's life in their hands, they would have never made that call. And I think that it's a lot easier to get a doctor to teach him or her entrepreneurship, to teach him uh, finances, to teach him marketing, to teach him business, than to get a business person to teach them healthcare. Because you don't get the nuances of healthcare unless you are involved in healthcare. So, that's that's really what the journey's been like, and ever since I've been here, uh, that's that's been my main focus. And I've been consulting with with healthcare professionals, and that we're starting to do some done for you uh, services as well for them. But but my main goal is to educate them and help them be better entrepreneurs because I believe that's that's what might save healthcare.
0: I know the old story in the U.S. is you go in to see your doctor and you spend more time in the waiting room than you actually do with the physician. And with uh, moving to live in my sister podcast, Fitlab Pittsburgh, I've had the opportunity to interview a number of physicians. And it seems like there's a growing number of physicians in the US, still the minority. And I know this is not a very popular term because it's kind of elitist, but they open concierge practices where they go outside of the insurance system. They say, look, I want to see patients. I want to spend 45 minutes with Ben, or if he needs to spend an hour with me, I want to spend an hour with him rather than saying, okay, I can give him 15 minutes, but then I've got 25 patients that are each going to get 30 seconds less time because I've got to get through
1: all these patients. Well, that's, that's one. And the other thing is it's just as frustrating for the doctor because the doctor only gets to see a patient for 15 minutes. And after that 15 minute visit with a the patient, they need to spend about 20 to 30 minutes charting what they saw in those 15 minutes. So it takes them 30 minutes to do the paperwork of a 15-minute visit, and then they have to pay three different people to code and to ask for reimbursements and to all those things. And for the patient, they think that they're prepaying their healthcare. They're like, well, money's taken out of my paycheck so that I can have free free healthcare. No, it's healthcare insurance as we know it today is kind of like Costco. You're just paying a membership for a discount. That's all you're, you're literally paying a membership so that when you need it, you get a discount. You're not, you don't have prepaid healthcare, free healthcare. They have here in Spain where people get sick and they go to the hospital and, and they don't pay when we first got here, we had to go to the ER and my son, he still, we, we still hadn't sorted out his paperwork. Although he's Spanish, uh, he was still not in the system. Right. So we went to the, to private hospital and he spent the night in the ER and you know, three or four doctors saw him, blah, blah, blah. The next morning I got the bill. It was like 90 something euro. So that's a hundred bucks. I mean, you, you don't even get a taxi in the middle of the night to, to a hospital for a hundred bucks. Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's the difference. So it is a broken system. Doctors want to be better doctors. Patients want better doctors, but we're all just, just victims of, uh, of, of the system. And you're absolutely right. That concierge model that works so much better for everyone involved.
0: I'm curious with your experience and your consulting, is it possible for a physician who graduates from medical school with those large debts that you mentioned, to do the concierge, where a number that I've talked to, you know, they obviously don't tell me how much they make. They say, but you know, I'm doing what I want to do. I maybe don't make as much money as I would if I was working for a large practice or for a large corporation. Obviously, they're giving better care. Is it possible for somebody to graduate from medical school with that debt and actually go into that type of practice?
1: I actually believe the opposite. I think that they are much more likely to make as much money as they want and deserve with a model in which they are the, the 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 owner and 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 the main operator of the business, as to when they're an employee of a large hospital group. Because when they're an employee of a large hospital group or a large you know practice or or anything like that, uh, they're that they're a high paid employee, but they're an employee and then you know they have different tax brackets and whatnot. Uh, but when they run their own practice, and this is the problem, and this is the part where I really. Uh, Get to bring value to them is that during medical school, you like we said, you graduate with a quarter of a million dollars of student debt. and Nobody teaches you how to run a healthcare business. Nobody teaches you how you how how are you actually going to make money from the two hundred fifty thousand dollars investment you just made throughout those. Plus, and that's not even counting the years that you invested in it. So, I think a big part of the problem and a big a big part of the challenge that many of these doctors run into when they say, you know what. I did this because I want to serve my patients. So I'm going to go into a concierge model, even if I don't make enough money, is that they're going in with the wrong mindset. I think that they could make so much more money that way and serving their patients much better than they currently are. And their patients are going to be happy to pay them that amount of money. They're going to look well, I paid this guy, you know, 50, $70 a month. And I have their, their, I can text them. I can I can just just come in to get the tests when when I need them. I can get phone consultations with the rest of their staff. I can get a nutritional consultant. I can do this. I can get a family uh, you know physician for my kids. I get my you know all those things. So I think I think that when done correctly it, it's it's a much more profitable model for physicians and if more physicians actually migrated to that model I I think a lot, of, a lot more doctors and a lot more patients would start adopting that.
0: You've brought two questions to mind or actually one comment and a question. I know I'm somebody who does use a concierge physician. I actually use telemedicine and friends of mine that I talk to, they say, well, does your insurance pay for it? And I don't know if it's because maybe I've worked for an orthopod in the past or it's because I recognize the importance of health. Insurance doesn't pay for it, but I don't mind paying out of pocket for that very thing you said. I can send a text message like, hey, do I need to worry about this? You know, I can uh, say, you know, I'd like to get my blood test to see what this is doing. And it's not, oh, we can get you in three weeks from now. It's like, oh, sure, let's do this. And here, let's set up an appointment and talk about it. But I think there has to be, you said there needs to be a, a change in the thought of the doctors. There has to be a change in the thought, at least here in the US, of many potential patients yeah. To understand that, okay, I've got insurance through my employer or I've got insurance you know, because I'm retired, but maybe I have to pay extra. And it's not just paying extra for a doctor. You're basically putting information or money in the bank to help your health, quality of life. And it actually could be considered a source of age management or a, a way of age management because you're aging better with better health.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, and and here's the thing that that people should should think about. Uh, number one is first we need to stop calling it insurance because it's not insurance. That that thing that you get money taken out of your paycheck for is not insurance. It's a discount club. Uh, that's, that's all it really is. And when we, uh, so the first problem is that, is that, that we have that concept of insurance. So it's hard to say, well, I'm already paying for it. So why am I going to pay on the, on, on the other side? Like, no, you have a discount club, then you might want to keep it because sometimes you might need, you know, you might need a chemotherapy or you might need something along those lines. And then and, and, and for that, it's, it's quite valuable. But then again, when you need primary care, when you need all those things, it it really it really is well worth its 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 investment. Even if you were paying, you know, when I when I started working, when I finished uh, my my studies and I did my age management training, I started working for a group in the U.S. called Sanogenics. And, uh, and and their program is about a thousand dollars a month, and that includes some supplements and whatnot. But but that's that's how much it is, and people were happy to pay for it because they were reducing their risk factors. They were their doctors were incentivized to keep patients healthy as opposed to the other system, which is just to keep them out of the hospital. Here, they're incentivized to keep them healthy and patients are happy to pay to be healthy. They don't want to pay to somebody to get rid of their disease. They're happy to pay somebody to keep them healthy and energetic and vibrant and, and enjoying life because that's really what you want to do. You want to enjoy life and you know, a lot of times that requires an investment. It's kind of like the investment that you pay for your gym or for, you know, for, for your yacht club, if you have it, or for your, uh, you know, any, any of those other benefits that you might, that you might look for.
0: We're talking with Dr. Ernesto Gutierrez. Uh, He has a podcast, Dr. E's Highway to Health. He also is an age management, regenerative medicine physician. And I think most importantly, an educator, I'm curious, Dr. E., how did you come by this idea that physicians should be entrepreneurs also? Is this something that uh, you had a mentor, or is this something when you graduated from medical school, you realized, wow, this model is kind of broken, or did it kind of come about gradually?
1: well I think I think combination of all those three options uh, I've always I've, I've always had a problem with with following orders and directions so uh, so that you know even even when I've been an employee I've always said you know what I'm, I'm probably not a very good employee uh, just letting people know right Um not because of, of anything else, but because I I pretty much very well know what I, what I need to do or what I would like to do and how I would like to do things. So that obviously has always pushed me towards um, entrepreneurship, right? But then when I started seeing a lot of my friends, a lot of doctors that I admired, this actually happened when I was doing my internship and we would see some of the doctors that were technically... Superior to some other doctors, especially surgeons. Right, so an orthopedic surgeon who was like the best surgeon you could ever see, and and they were barely making ends meet. When and then you would see somebody else who wasn't as good as uh, a surgeon. They weren't really bad, but they weren't nearly as good. And and they had a full practice, and they were flourishing, and they you know they just. They just did much, much better off. So so I was figuring, like, why is this happening? And then I started noticing that it was happening to a lot of my friends, a lot of my colleagues, people that I went to school with, and that they were closing up their practice. They were quitting medicine because they they simply couldn't make their ends meet. And I saw that the same thing was pretty much happening to me. And that's when I seeked out a mentor because it was, it was actually my dad at one point who, and I was talking to him. He's not a doctor, but I was talking to him and I was saying, listen, I, I just don't know what to do and we're having this this trouble this problem. Our clinic was was just medical tourism, so we had to recruit patients from all over the world to come see us. And we're having a really hard time with that. And and that's what he told me. He said, listen, you've you've had a couple of bosses, you've had a couple of, of doctors that you've learned from, but but you've never really had anyone who who whom you can learn business from, who's who's taught you the ropes of the healthcare business. So that's when I seeked out a mentor and I've been fortunate enough ever since. And that was two thousand and 2012, ever since I've been working with uh, Darren Hardy, the former editor of Success Magazine uh, in different capacities. And, uh, and that's, that's what's changed everything. And that's what's opened up my eyes. And I've been able to help some of my friends. And when I when I see the problems that we're seeing in healthcare, I realize that part of the problem is that the people who own these businesses... They don't care about the patients and they don't care about the doctors. Um, They they just think, you know, they just care about the business. and, And you see the decisions that they're making, like I was saying earlier, a doctor would never make those decisions. So that's why I believe that if we empower doctors and we teach them how to be entrepreneurs and they can take over these, uh, these different hospital systems, these different insurance models, these different, uh, all, all these things that are affecting our system, then the decisions are going to be much more patient-centered and much more health-centered instead of it being a, a disease management model.
0: We're talking with Dr. Ernesto Gutierrez. He is the host of Dr. E's Highway to Health podcast. He is a regenerative medicine and age management physician and educator for patients and physicians. Dr. E, I would be remiss in this time of COVID 19 if we didn't take a few minutes to discuss that since you have practiced and lived in Mexico, Spain, and the United States. And I know we were chatting uh, prior to recording. You are in Spain right now. You, your wife, and your young son are. I say this kind of tongue in cheek. Essentially, trapped in your apartment there.
1: Yeah, yeah. The, without the essentially, I mean. Um, so we're we're into you know 20 something days already um, inside. The only one who's been going out is it's myself. So I've I've been going out. I go out. Uh, probably been out four times just to do grocery shopping and go to the pharmacy and whatnot. Um, my wife is pregnant. Our son is is two and a half. Um, and we just, we just don't want to risk it. And, and yeah, it does get, it, 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 it has been brutal, man. I know I was chatting with you before
0: recording and here in Washington County, Pennsylvania, uh, couple of days ago, they finally did a stay at home order, which for people who are not in Pennsylvania, it essentially means if you have an essential job, you can go out, you can go to the grocery store, you can go to the pharmacy, you can go out to exercise. And I'm just curious about the differences between, say, Spain and the United States before that as a physician, and as somebody who is global. When was the first time that you thought, okay, this is something that we may have to be in an apartment for a set period of time? I know I was telling you about three weeks ago when I went to see a physician uh, for a follow-up appointment, and he mentioned that one of his colleagues was on one of the last flights to Italy before they shut the country down. That's when I realized, oh, this is probably going to affect me too. When did it first hit you that this was not just as an educator, as a physician, but actually personally with you and your family?
1: So when I when I realized that it was going to get serious is when they started calling off soccer matches here in in Europe. So when when you see a competition like the Champions League start calling off matches and postponing them and especially from from Italy where 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 this whole thing really started getting out of control really fast, that's when it dawned on me. And and now here's the strange thing. People in Spain didn't listen. We saw Borders in Italy being closed down. We saw sporting events being closed down. Spanish teams were traveling to Italy to play, and they had to play uh, behind closed doors, so no public was, no nobody was was allowed inside the stadium, right? And 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 here in Spain, they were still playing. They were still doing everything else, and people were like, "Oh yeah, we're concerned." But then you would walk down the street, and bars were packed, and restaurants were open, and everyone was still, you know, just minding their own business. And it was around that time when when we saw that things weren't, weren't getting better in Italy fast enough. And, and, and doctors were, were getting especially concerned that I told my wife and I said, listen, I I think, I think we need to stay, to stay indoors. And and she even told me, she's like, oh, I I just go out with the baby because the baby stopped going to, um, he, 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 he would, spend three, four hours in daycare acre every day. Um, but since the 1st of March, he stopped going. So my wife would take him out for walks because she's pregnant, like I said, and and she would go out for walks. She would walk 10, 12, 13 kilometers. Uh, so you're talking five, six, seven miles, right? Um, in the morning. And that was her, her activity. And, and, you know, she'd take the baby with him, with her. And I told her, I said, listen, I don't, I don't think we should continue doing that. This is, this is worrying me a little bit. And, um, and so she said, you know, she's, she's a very all or nothing mentality. So she said, okay, cool. And she hasn't gone out in 21 days. And, um, so that was, that was a Thursday. The following, fr- not not the next day, but the following Friday, that's when, when Spain declared its state emergency. And we started actually seeing a lot of cases right here in Alicante. And I told you, uh, the Italian team from Milan traveled to Valencia to play together with 8,000 or 9,000 fans from the most affected region in Italy. So they came over here and the problem was that they were feeling okay. They didn't have a fever. That was their control. Oh, don't worry. We'll, we'll be at the airport. We'll be checking everyone's temperature. Like, well, you have a two week incubation period, so they might have it and not be having a fever. Um, so, so yeah, that was, that was a, Big part of the problem. I think we over, well, not overreacted, but we reacted before the rest of the people. But so far, we've been indoors for almost four weeks and we still got another two to go, uh, at least official. So let's see. And it took it took the country a while. They had to literally close it down. There's There's police officers now right out hear out, out the street that they, they stop certain cars or like, where are you going to? Where are you coming from? Uh, just to make sure that people are literally just going in for groceries or, for, or to essential work. And you mentioned you've been doing this uh, for, for three
0: weeks and, or four weeks and maybe another two. Is that kind of open to interpretation to what happens. It may yeah. be another two. It may be another four or six. You're not quite sure.
1: Yes. Yeah, so originally it was two weeks that, w- that were due on last Friday. So today's Monday. So it was due on last Friday. And around Wednesday, president came out and they're like, yeah, the numbers are still climbing. So we're going to stay indoors until April 11th. So, so far right now it's until April 11th and, and God knows uh, where we're going to end. It looks like... Italy's cases have started to decline, so deaths and then so on. So that leads us to believe that Italy's past the apex, which means that Spain should be past the apex at some point this week, uh, hopefully. And if that's the case, then you know we might start relaxing some of those indications. Now, it's important to understand that even if we're past the apex people are still having it and people are still transmitting it so so we have to be careful and some some charts some graphs that i was looking at for the us they're expecting the peak to be around april 14 april 15 um, so yeah, April 15 is, is, is a mess every time, no matter what. <laughs> and, uh, and now they're expecting the apex to be heading around those, those dates, uh, unless some important changes are happening. So people who are already concerned, people who are already worried, if you listen to doctors, they're already running out of protective equipment. And we still, we're still two weeks away from, from the peak. So that's what's worrying.
0: I'm curious as a physician and somebody with a a pregnant wife and a young child, how much of the, okay, I'm going to let us go out for a little bit now is driven by what, what you learned from the Spanish government versus you as a physician taking the information from the Spanish government, plus the internet is a good thing in that it gives you a lot of education and information. It's a bad thing. It gives you a lot of information. How much of it do you think it's going to be that maybe you're going to look at it and say, you know, I might feel com- more comfortable with my family with waiting another week or two versus, oh, government says it's okay, let's go? I
1: think, I think it's more... Uh, uh, Along those lines of, I'm going to play it by ear. I'm going to see how how it's developing elsewhere. Uh, My brother-in-law, he's been living in uh, Hong Kong since last year. So, I mean, Hong Kong never really got a lot of cases, but it's right there smack in the middle of China. Um, And and, and life is, is just going back to normal right now. Uh, so people are starting to go out they, they never really shut down but they were they were having a lot of, of a lot of checks a lot of controls and obviously people are a lot more disciplined over there right uh, here uh, I'm a little bit concerned because people are too lax on it uh, and and I can already see I mean the Spanish are thinking that, state emergency is going to be lifted and every bar is going to be open and you're going to be able to, you know, just pack them and they're just waiting to go party. I don't think that's going to be the case. I, I think that a lot of services are going to start slowly going back up. Like, you know, the more essential ones and banks and uh, certain things of, you know, government offices uh, and little by little offices and, and restaurants and bars and all that is going to be really the last. And for us, you know, I think, I think it all depends on, on how we're seeing. I mean, honestly, we're in a very low risk, um, population, to be honest. I mean, we're, we're healthier. We're on the healthier side. I was just talking to my wife. The, the one I'm the most worried about is, is myself. Um, you know, as so, a so former cancer survivor, uh, I, I, I am worried I could, you know, that, that, you know, it could take a turn for the, for the worse, uh, from what we've seen, babies, Pregnant women—they—they they seem to not not be very affected uh, by the virus. Of course, they can have it. Of course, they can get symptoms. Of course, they can even transmit it to other people. But they don't seem to be very affected. Uh, but even then, we—we we don't want to put ourselves through that. And um, her grandma is still alive, and she lives with her mom. So obviously, we don't want to have that virus and risk passing it over to them. So, to answer your question, I think I'm going to play it more by ear. Um, I think. I think I am, I am well-positioned to actually make that call. And that's part of the problem that we're seeing is that not everyone has the background that I have to be able to discern the information. And, and ever since this whole thing started, that's why I've been doing daily updates. I'm doing daily updates on my Facebook uh, page, trying to like, let people know because one of the problems that we're seeing is every doctor has their hands full treating COVID. So who's informing people? governments, celebrities, and pretty much any other idiot with an internet connection. So <laughs> now that I'm, I'm literally trapped, like you very well said here, and my paperwork to practice here in Spain is still not done, so I cannot even go outside and lend a hand. I, I, I've taken this almost as my job to kind of like be, be educating people and, and be helping spread the right information and say like, listen, this is the reality. This is what's currently happening. And, and this is why it's so serious.
0: I'm curious, I think you're in a unique position to comment on this. I mean, because there's so much information and misinformation out there, you mentioned that you're the only one in your family who goes out for the pharmacy and the grocery store. What precautions, as far as uh, hand cleaning, what you don't touch? I know you don't touch anything, face masks, et cetera, because a lot of people. They don't have the background, and they don't know where to get the background. You think, oh, so-and-so says you should do this, and -and so-and-so says you should do that. So on the one hand, yeah, you're another opinion. On the other hand, as a physician, as a cancer survivor, as somebody who says, okay, I'm going to be a little more cautious maybe than some other people, I think that's good information to get out there.
1: Yeah, for sure. So one of the things that and 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 they've been very very diligent about that here. So when you go to a grocery store, uh, they're they're very strict about how many people they allow inside at any given time. So there's a queue, there's a line outside, and people are are standing in line, of course, with you know three, four, five feet in between one another. And when somebody goes out, they they allow you in and. They have hand sanitizer, so there's usually a guard. They, they make sure that you put on hand sanitizer, then you put in plastic gloves, and you go inside. They're not requiring face masks because, you know, honesty, a face mask doesn't really protect you from catching it, but it does protect others if you are sick with it if you're sick with it you shouldn't even be outside to be honest unless you know you live alone but even even here what we've seen a lot of solidarity ever since the whole thing started our neighbors started posting signs saying like if you're elderly if you if you think you have it if anything just let us know we'll go get your groceries we'll go get your stuff and i see that happening all over the world really um so if you have it you shouldn't be going out if you don't have it that really doesn't make much sense to have to wear a face mask but for instance the counters where they like the deli counters and things like that they have a line about two feet away from the counter that you can that you shouldn't cross and the aisles as well when you're when you're nearing people and and those of us who actually had this training and who've been in an or we know how to navigate an or to not contaminate we do pretty much the same thing so when when i go to the grocery store right now and I try to stay a good three to five feet away from people. But if I have to, if we're both going in an aisle, you just, just turn your back to them. Right? So each one turns their back and, and that way you're not breathing in each other's face. Uh, you try not to touch, uh, things that you're not going to buy. And here's what I do. So I brought with myself a couple of uh, tote bags from Trader Joe's and I like those because they're machine washable, they're cloth and they're machine washable. So I take two or three of those and that's how I grow go grocery shopping. I buy pretty much as much as I can that comes in plastic packaging. And I know that the whole world hates plastic packaging, but now it's, it's, it's actually proven uh, useful because when I come in, I just grab a spray bottle with alcohol. So I'm the only one who comes in. My wife goes in, 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 in the other room and I come in straight into the kitchen and I spray everything that has plastic, you know, that's completely covered in plastic. I spray everything with alcohol and I just let it dry there on the side. Um, so if, if it's boxes or anything like that, you spray the box, um, you know, the, the, the paint <laughs> comes off, but it's, you don't care, right? Um, fruits and vegetables, produce, anything goes straight into the wash. Right then and there, one thing to consider if people are used to not doing that so that it lasts longer, just be aware that it's not going to last as long. Um but but we still do that. And you can freeze. That's, that's something we've been doing. So you buy strawberries and we wash them, we chop them up and we freeze them in bags so that when we need to use smoothie or something like that, you have them. Uh, so you lose, obviously you lose some conveniences, but you do need to go that extra mile. Uh, the other thing that I was recommending, and it's funny because I did that today on my on my update, exactly what are the recommendations? Because in the US right now, most people are going a starting week two of a mandated you know, lockdown. So most people are going to start running out of groceries. So what's another thing that you should do? Um, Always wear uh, cotton clothes when you go outside. Um, You don't need to cover yourself up. And I see a lot of people going out with like their ski masks or their, their, their big jackets. And here's the problem with most of those jackets is that you cannot wash them at home. And in most of those surfaces, the virus can stay active for a long time. So if you get one of those windbreakers or anything like that, it can stay active there. Now in cloth, in cotton, it can also stay there, but you just throw it in the wash. So you throw it in warm water and boom, you're done with it, right? So try to wear some of those. Same thing with your shoes. So when I come in, I spray my shoes with alcohol um, and I just leave them outside. And I, I have a pair of shoes that I just wear outside when I go out right now. I have my you know, my, my zombie apocalypse shoes over there. And um, and it's just, it just extreme precautions. It takes me a lot longer to go outside and, and come back inside and, and do grocery shopping. But I you know, I, I, I heard the 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 leader of the World Health Organization a couple of weeks ago, he said that we cannot be too careful. We can only be too lax. So, you know, if, if it is what it is, it's our new normal right now. And um, that's that's what we have to consider. So that's that's what I've been doing.
0: Great information from Dr. Ernesto Guterres. He's talked about his career as an educator in regenerative medicine, age management, educating patients, as well as other physicians, and I think has done a great job in the last few minutes of describing his experiences with COVID-19 living in Spain. Uh, I'm currently in week three also, so I'm starting to get a little stir crazy, but I also have the realization that if this is the worst that it is as far as staying at home, it could be a lot worse because, you know, you have lights, you have water. You and I are talking over a a pretty good internet connection.
1: Well, don't get me me started on that one because the news out this morning is that last week, so last Monday, Disney Plus debuted here in Spain and in Italy and in uh, France. And it it was scheduled for this week, right? But we just... Europe just hit the new record of of how much data transmission was was made over you know the internet, and now they're talking that they're going to start throttling those things and Netflix and uh, and another one I think HBO we're not going to be doing HD uh, streaming for the foreseeable future. So a lot of people are starting to get antsy. They're like, oh my god, now we're running out of internet.
0: Great information from Dr. E. I want to thank you for taking time and chatting both about your pathway in medicine, as well as spending the last few minutes talking about
1: COVID-19, which I think is of interest. No, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both, underscore, mov2liv. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.